0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces. Presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights.
1: And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Amit Bindra. It's been a while since we've done a Max Amit or Amit Max solo because Amit and I are one track folks with limited scope of creativity in the world. It's going to be another sports one, but we do have actual stuff to talk about today. So let's just jump right into it. Starting off, Amit, I know the one you were interested in covering is we've now done two episodes touching on at least in part John Gruden, the Washington football team, the Toxic and at least in our view, hostile work environment
0: that existed there, there's some new developments on that story, right? There are. And we actually now have a name for the Washington football team. They're the Washington Commanders. I don't know when that happened, but it was sometime this year. But the big employment law development is in the context of more employees coming forward. So I I believe it was early February of this year, six former employees met leaders of the U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee. For a roundtable conversation and during that conversation there were new allegations that came out regarding workplace misconduct in washington and some of them they're all pretty bad i'm pretty egregious in terms of what's coming out but one of them i think is going to lead to another round of investigations at least one of them so six people who spoke with the house of representatives the story ran in cbs sports I know the Washington Post had re- previously reported about it, and they also did a follow-up regarding the additional investigation. The individuals, the former employees who joined the ha- House Roundtable included a former marketing coordinator, a video production manager, a former cheerleader and director of marketing, and another former director of marketing and client relations, and another cheerleader, and a coordinator of business development. And some of the allegations include from not being told not to speak with Dan Snyder, the governor or owner of the Washington Commanders. Another allegation was that they had made a video cut of lewd footage specifically for him at his request, at Dan Snyder's request, which was even set to his favorite bands. Another allegation was that one of the employees had gone to his house in Aspen, Colorado, after a awards trip, was told that she had to sleep in the basement because the men had invited over prostitutes. But the most egregious, I think, allegation of all of these is from Tiffany Johnson, a former cheerleader and marketing manager. She had spent eight years working for the team and alleges that she was once strategically seated next to Snyder at a work dinner so that he could, quote, put his hands in the middle of her thigh until I physically removed it. He had touched her in a sexual manner. So obviously that crosses so many different lines and has so many different implications from an employment law standpoint. The NFL had released a statement regarding Ms. Johnson's allegations, as has Dan Snyder. And the aftermath of that too, is that the commanders announced that they have hired another independent investigative team from the Palos Global Group LLC to look into the claims by Ms. Johnson. And the legal team is going to be led by Deborah Yang, a partner at Gibson, Dunn and Croucher LLP in LA and she was a previous chair of its white-collar defense and investigation practice group.
1: There's a lot that jumps out there.
0: <laughs> yep. Um, yep, There's a lot in there.
1: So I don't remember if we covered Dan Snyder really as part of the – or Daniel Snyder as part of the um, either of the first two episodes we did that touched on the Washington story. It's not a terribly – I mean, I don't know a lot of sports owners that are well-liked by their fan bases, but Dan Snyder – even in that world holds a special place of disdain among Washington football fans and just sort of NFL fans. And most of that is just, and he's a really bad owner whose teams are not very good. And he's an egomaniac who like fires coaches, makes poor player decisions and thinks he knows more than the football folks, but he's also not a terribly pleasant person. And these allegations are really disturbing on top of him, not running the team. Well,
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. These allegations remind me in some ways of the allegations we had talked about in in relation to the owner of the Phoenix Suns. Now there, I think some of the allegations were more in the context of racial statements and racist comments. Here, it's more sexual in nature, but it's, I think, two similar types of owners. They've had a lot of criticism in terms of how they've kind of owned their team's money they've spent, decisions they've made, and both of them now also have pretty serious allegations being levied against them.
1: This is not – wasn't wasn't it Robert Kraft who got caught up in some sexual – he's the owner of the New England Patriots. Yeah. He'd had some sexual misconduct allegations of his own.
0: Yeah, I don't recall what ended up happening in the outcome, but I know that he had gone to a massage parlor, if I recall correctly, in Florida and got roped up into a – I think there was a separate investigation into that parlor, and he was maybe one of the folks who had been visiting – don't quote me on that. I don't remember exactly what happened, but that's around the lines what I remember. Yeah,
1: it's my memory, too. I do. I only remember this because it was the most salacious part, but I do recall there being some legal battle over the release of certain photos, possibly of him in a in a compromised spot being public or subject to, to being sealed by it. But but I guess to circle back to the actual relevance and employment law and why we're covering this again, can you talk a little bit about how this builds on or how we kind of place these allegations relative to to the Gruden case, to the allegations about the Washington football team, I guess the commanders now, and that organization generally, and the NFL more at large.
0: Yeah. And just for context for some of the listeners, if they don't remember, allegations had come out about misconduct within Washington previously. And so then there was an investigation. That investigation had led to a lot of emails being looked at and documents being produced. So, because of that, there was a fine of I believe $10 million levied against the Washington Commanders or the Washington football team. And that in you know, a vacuum is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money to a billion-dollar entity like the Washington Commanders. Right. From that initial investigation, there was the Nagruden lawsuit because his email specifically had somehow been leaked or released, and that led to his separation. Now we have more people coming forward in light of and specifically because the Congress is continuing to investigate the Washington commanders. And so I don't know exactly where this is headed, but I think a couple of problems I foresee is there was already an investigation and this stuff didn't come out. And so that's, that should be a big deal. The House of Representatives Oversight Committee is continuing to look into the Washington commanders, which means there's going to be more of these situations coming out. When I was just researching this, I know there are law firms right now, asking, soliciting for folks who have potential claims against the commander. So I don't envision this is going to stop anytime soon. Now, obviously, and this isn't surprising, Dan Snyder denies these allegations, but they did hire an investigative team to look into them. Part of his denial is that the lengths of some of these allegations are um, over 13 years old, which, again, doesn't surprise me he would say that. But the fact that they are hiring an outside group again to investigate after an investigation should have happened already seems to be a pretty big deal from a legal standpoint.
1: It does. I, I'm always leery when any entity, large one, says, oh, we're investigating or we're hiring a firm or we're hiring somebody to look into it. I mean, listen, it's a good thing. It's better than doing nothing, I guess. The problem is, I guess from my perspective, if the owner of the football team who really behaves with impunity is the one who engaged in misconduct, it's sort of the same question we asked in the Robert Sarver Phoenix Suns um, episode what real consequences or mechanisms are there for levying real consequences? And separately from that, I don't think the NFL actually cares about this. They care about being in trouble for it. But all of these guys are, I should be careful. Several of these owners have their own sorted history, skeletons in the closet. I don't know that any
0: one of them has any real interest in policing the others. I agree with that completely. And so that's why I think it's interesting that the House continues to put its thumb on the needle here. So one of the comments from a congressperson was, quote, we launched this investigation because the NFL has not been transparent about the workplace misconduct issues it uncovered within Washington. And so the fact that they are continuing to investigate and more and more people are continuing to come forward, and now there are other law firms who are trying to figure out ways to continue to sue, is definitely a development. I agree with you that I don't think the NFL cares big picture about the misconduct, but at some point, it becomes such a distraction and an impact on their revenue that they're going to have to do something. And this is, you know, we're going to talk about this in a moment. It's not the only litigation the NFL is dealing with. And it's not even the only litigation they're dealing with in the context of the Washington commanders. It's, you know, these leagues are interesting because what
1: what motivates them to care or react to public pressure or what misconduct really gets them out of bed in the morning really seems arbitrary at times. And I think it's less a function of how bad the misconduct. I mean, there are exceptions, right? Like Aaron Hernandez, you know, before he took his own life, was convicted of killing people. So, like, obviously, that sort of worked itself out. It wasn't like anybody had to make any awkward decisions about cutting him or not in advance. He was in prison. There was no threat of having to explain to the public Why you had a convicted murderer on your roster. And I remember Ray Caruth, when I was a kid in the 90s, I think was convicted of killing his girlfriend who was pregnant or shooting at her. Like sometimes these things work themselves out. But sometimes they don't. And when the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NHL seems to care about this, to me, and I'm speaking anecdotally, seems less a function of moral outrage about this and more what's going to be a headache and start to cost us money. Because remember. You know, this franchise, the Washington Commanders defended vigorously their right to have a racial slur as their name up until the Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd motivated BLM protests of 2020. It was only when there was a public groundswell of anger that they were like, OK, maybe now it's time to get rid of this. It's not like they were suddenly like shown the light. It started to cost the NFL money.
0: Yeah, and I've always wondered about this, too. And we talked about this in the context of the the Suns podcast and Robert Sarver, if Dan Snyder has to sell the team, the sale is going to be multiple billions of dollars with a B. And so from the NFL standpoint, they know they can find someone to purchase the team and it's going to be a lot of money. I think to some degree, or maybe to a large degree, the concern they probably have is maybe more of the other owners is that they have to draw a high line because they all engaged in some form of bad conduct. And so they don't want to be forced to sell every time some stuff comes out because none of them or most of them probably aren't engaging or doing the right thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess there are degrees to bad, right? Like there's, yeah. Oh,
0: I'm moving the football team or I'm exactly. I'm, that,
1: I'm the Hallises and the McCaskies with a reputation in Chicago for penny pinching and incompetence. But there's, there's a lot of area between that and the fan base hates you because your teams aren't good and they resent you and you fired the coach or you traded the quarterback, whatever. And my God, you're creating a horrific hostile work environment you're personally assaulting women or tolerable or or the like but but even still i just i think this always goes back to whenever industries are allowed to police themselves you're going to get outcomes like this
0: yeah and i can't I just don't know the answer to this i don't know what mechanism exists for the other owners to force snyder to sell the team and so maybe that's why congress has to be more involved and it's great they are because by being involved, this continues to stay in the media and the press, and more of these people are coming forward just to highlight how terrible this workplace was.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the one upside to all of this is it being sports sometimes does. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, Roger Ailes at Fox News gets brought down by people who were at least on television, play conservative uh, commentators, but who he did some really horrific things to. I, you know, call me whatever, but I, I can't imagine that if those, Those were people or people of color or maybe a different place. If you get a mandatory arbitration, you can hear my little girl coming in in the background and my dog is busted into the, uh, into the office. So it's, uh, it's one of our favorite podcast tropes, my little girl and my dog messing
0: with me. So how old is she now? uh,
1: She is going to be 20 months this month. I'm, I'm a very proud dad, but thank you to our listeners for tolerating that. But I guess my point being, you know, like a lot of these things, it shouldn't take a high profile sports case or somebody who's not typically in the most vulnerable group to initiate change, but maybe just like with Fox News case, I was talking about a moment ago, maybe this is the kind of thing that is a catalyst for more oversight over these things. You just kind of shake your head that it's going to take an incident like this to get there.
0: I agree. And I think I, it goes back to the point you made too about investigation. I mean, there was an investigation previously conducted and a lot of this somehow wasn't uncovered. So that part of it is also not great. For lack of a better term, I mean,
1: it's 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 like any other investigation. When you don't, it's sort of the like when they ask somebody, "Did you read this or have you seen it?" You know, I think about like Trump's tweets or some of certain allegations at various points in the political spectrum, and somebody says, "Well, I don't, I haven't seen it yet, or I haven't had a chance to look at it, or I I take him at his word." And it's like, well, in what world do you take an invest like when you're investigating somebody just the accused? Like, is that is that what you're looking at? And it's one of these things where you wonder. Was the investigation actually intended to come up with anything or was it intended to cover their bases so they can say, look, we investigated?
0: Well, and one of the new people, one of the former employees that spoke with the house at this round table said she was harassed on a daily basis by the team's former chief marketing officer. And there's also an allegation in the CBS Sports article about how Snyder had private investigators sent to dozens of former cheerleaders' homes. So I think that's part of it too is as this continues to be investigated and in the news and stay within the political scene, more and more people are feeling comfortable to come forward as well. Another bit we have here, Max is muted, but doesn't realize it. <laughs> I got to be the worst millennial when it comes to Zoom. I swear to God.
1: Anyway, I, I, I'm i just repeating myself at this point. It's probably better it was muted. I was just going to say, hopefully this brings good attention on it. People are able to come forward and it, it does bring change. I'm not terribly optimistic because As we're about to get into, this is not exactly a group of folks who were terribly inclined to doing the right thing, but I guess stranger things have happened.
0: Well, why don't we take a quick break and then come back and transition to another NFL situation, to Brian Flores' lawsuit. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer.
1: I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show.
0: Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share.
1: And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review.
0: But only if it's
1: going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise, we're all set. And welcome back. Thanks for staying with us through the break. So we're going to stay with the NFL. We're going to stay with sports, but we're going to switch gears. And we are going to talk about the class action lawsuit filed by Brian Flores, a former NFL head coach, most recently of the Miami Dolphins against the nfl the new york giants the miami dolphins and the denver Broncos, and then it says john doe teams one through 29 in the original class complaint for those reading at home and curious and reading it themselves because we're not going to go over all of the details the case caption for the lawyers and those who know how to navigate pacer is uh 22 cv 871 filed in the southern district of new york you could also just look up the lawsuit i, I found it off of an ESPN article.
0: One, one pet peeve I have that I want to complain about is it is, I find very annoying sometimes to find the underlying lawsuit from articles. I had to go through four different articles to find the lawsuit. And journalists, if any of you are listening, which you probably aren't, please just link to the actual lawsuit in your article. It makes it so much easier for us. It does. So Amit, do you want me to go through sort of what led to the lawsuit or what preceded it? Or would you like, yeah, do you want to give some context on the lawsuit? I want to nerd out a little bit about just how it was drafted and the strategy behind it. But let's first talk about some of the the facts behind it.
1: Sure. So Brian Flores is an African-American NFL coach, former head coach of the Miami Dolphins. He was coaching the Dolphins up until this year. And I don't, at least my understanding is he's a pretty well-regarded coach and it wasn't, I mean, the Dolphins have been bad basically since Dan Marino retired, the, uh, the, The former Bears coach Dave Wanstead had a bunch of playoff seasons with them, but generally speaking, they cycle through coaches every three or four years, and they're not really any closer to their quote-unquote return to glory from the 70s. Yeah,
0: he was supposed to be one of the best candidates on on the job market after he lost his gig, which I think is another aspect of this lawsuit that I find compelling, for sure.
1: Yeah, he was, at least my understanding, and I gave up on the NFL a while back, I'm a big college fan, but my understanding is he's a pretty well-regarded
0: offensive mind. Um, I I can't comment on that, but I know he was well he was on the the list of some of the best candidates out there for sure.
1: Yeah. And the dolphins have been bad. So it wasn't, you know, sometimes these teams are just not good and good coaches just have bad players or ownership is not terribly functional. And there are a lot of reasons why good coaches, good players end up in bad situations. And it's not always an indictment of them.
0: Yeah. And I think there are smart NFL people who were surprised the dolphins did not retain him. And I think he even within his lawsuit, have some allegations about the Dolphins' ownership and how poorly they're managed.
1: Oh, he's a Michigan man, Stephen Russ, But yeah, there was an allegation that he offered him 100000 bucks a game that he, he lost, right? He wanted him to tank or basically continue to lose so they'd get an improved draft position. And anybody who knows how coaches think, that's sort of anathema to the way they operate. Coaches don't really think that way. Right, exactly. Um, but at its core, this is a race discrimination lawsuit more than anything else. And the allegation... You know, the backdrop to this is there's a law. There is a rule, not a law. There is a rule in the NFL called the Rooney Rule, and the gist of that rule it, it's sort of a a window dressing, or hat tip, or nod, whatever you want to call it, to the fact that there is a race problem in the NFL. That there is a disparity, like in a lot of other areas of high-paying high jobs, where you have a very white coaching base, and there is a history of black coaches not getting opportunities. And you get a lot of the same old racist tropes that these guys aren't ready they're not sharp enough something like that but the bottom line is at some point this role was instituted so when nfl teams have a coaching vacancy they are required to interview at least one minority candidate they don't have to hire them but they got to at least give this person the time of day now unfortunately what that often leads to is token interviews where people get the interviews so you can be the black guy that this team interviewed so they can say hey We complied with the rule. Look, we didn't break the rule. We care about diversity hiring. We didn't hire him, but we thought about it. And obviously, I think it, and I say this not like it's okay. It goes without saying that I I don't think women are required to be interviewed or hired. That's yet another issue the league's got, but that's a a conversation for a different day. Brian Flores interviewed for, I believe it was the New York Giants football job this offseason. So he gets let go by the Dolphins, and he is, at least on paper, a hot candidate. The Giants interview him. The head coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, then sends him a text message after the interview. So Belichick texts him, who he knew because Belichick had worked for him for like a decade, and he texts him that he heard that the Buffalo Bills, who also, I guess, had a vacancy, or he heard from Buffalo that, I guess they knew, I don't think Buffalo fired their coach, but maybe they knew that New York was interviewing him, that he was the guy that those teams were interested in, that they are your guy. And then Flores s writes back asking him to clarify whether he was talking to him or a guy named Brian Dable, former offensive coordinator, I believe, to your Alabama Crimson Tide, right?
0: I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah, roll Tide. Did
1: not know that, dude. And and Dable and and Belichick then writes back, going, "Sorry if I f this. He said the full word, f this up. I double checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Brian Dable. I'm sorry about that. Now there is a lot of speculation that Belichick did this on purpose to." He has a history with, I think, those teams, or maybe he felt some loyalty to Flores and and thought it was garbage that they were using him to make it look like he was get a shot at the job. But one way or the other, this is sort of the smoking gun that we are always talking about in these cases of somebody knows going in that a decision has already been made, but the the minority candidate, or in this case, the person who is in the protected class
0: is still going through the motions thinking they have a shot at the promotion of the job. Yep, 100%. And so- that's kind of laying out the, the factual background. What I find really interesting about this case is where well, there's a lot. One is Brian Flores does this when he's still one of the hottest commodities in the market. And so he, I'm, su- I'm sure, or at least some of you are at least familiar with the Colin Kaepernick situation where he was kneeling in protest to highlight disparities in America for black men and police brutality. And in response to that, he was not able to even get back up quarterback positions across the NFL he's still trying to do so and can't do so and so Brian Flores at the height of his career when he's still relatively young files this lawsuit and so to some degree there has to be a fear of if it's not even going to be explicit retaliation some form of implicit retaliation yeah, and not ball. being able yeah effectively and so for him to do that at this point of his career where he is in the market I think does speak volume that means a lot for what he did the other thing about this loss that I find interesting is when it's filed. It was filed between the championship weekend and the Super Bowl. So at this point of the year in the NFL season, there aren't any games. They're just leading up and getting ready for the Super Bowl. And so this is the key news story before the Super Bowl rolls up. And so that in of itself is important because it's going to get all the attention. It's going to get all the headlines. And so the timing of that, I thought, was super smart.
1: It was. It was also filed on February 1st, so the first day of Black History Month. I I think it was, I I like the strategy of basically doing it when the NFL, you know, the NFL, there's a reason why they put two weeks between the championship games and the Super Bowl, because that's two weeks of coverage and of public attention and advertisements and of people paying attention to the league. It's for a league that like prints money, that is their time to really shine and cash in and maximize attention. And the very last thing that the league with a, as the lawsuit points out, a pretty assorted racial history, one is to be talking about a race discrimination class action filed because they don't take black job candidates seriously.
0: Yep, right before their biggest event of the year. So- I think um, that was brilliant strategy. No, I agree. It pain correctly. And with that strategy, what they also did was they filed this lawsuit while under section 1981, and the way I read the complaint, prior to a charge of discrimination being filed. So the attorneys on that are listening will know this, that for employment claims for under Title VII or the state equivalent Human Rights Act, there is an administrative process that an employee must go through. So before filing a complaint in state or federal court, depending on which state or federal law they're seeking or trying to um, seek protection from, there has to be a charge filed in the relevant agency. Here, they file a public lawsuit under under Section 1981, which doesn't require that charge filing, so you can go straight to court while the charge has not even been filed, which also allows them to get quick attention to the situation.
1: It does. It also eliminates the caps on damages for the most part and gives you a four-year statute of limitations. So to the extent they ever do get this case to a point of class certification or class discovery, your pool of potential participants is going to be a little bigger. No, I think it was a really...
0: You know, that's strategic too. And to go back to Max's point from earlier, it's filed on February 1st. On page one of the lawsuit, there's two quotes. The first quote is from Bill Belichick saying, sorry, I effed this up. And the second quote is from Dr. Martin Luther King, the start of Black History Months. And so I think that's really smart and powerful too, because that's going to grab so many national attention and storylines.
1: And I apologize. I realized
0: um, Brian Flores is the son of Honduran immigrants. I, I mischaracterized his uh and then another part I found very powerful in terms of just the writing itself that I think is strategic. There are three components to the, this complaint where three paragraphs where there are just pictures. It's pictures of all the head coaches. Then there's pictures of all the general managers. And then there's pictures of all the owners. And the whole point is supposed to be there are no black men or there's maybe one or two. The vast majority of these people are not black men. And I think that visual is so much more impactful then the words of one out of 30 or whatever you can come up with just having that image. And that image is perfect for ESPN or whatever news media outlet is going to be covering the story.
1: Yeah. I, it's funny. I, I'm smiling because I get, when I file a discrimination or harassment complaint, if I have ESI that I find damning or images that I think are quite powerful, I like to throw them in.
0: I've never been popular for doing that sort of thing. I wish Charlie was here, actually. So there's this Richard Posner article I love where it's him talking, and he's a former judge for the Seventh Circuit or appellate court judge for the Seventh Circuit in Illinois and I guess Wisconsin and Indiana as well. And the point of his article is you know, sometimes it's good to put an image in a document, a legal document, because then everyone knows what you're talking about. It makes it a lot more clear. And so here in paragraph 115, they say there is only currently one black head coach out of 32 NFL teams. The following photo speaks for itself. And it's a picture and a headshot of all 32 head coaches.
1: Yeah, it is. And it goes beyond that. And it also talks about, it does go into the Rooney rule. It goes through the racial disparities in upper management. So in the general manager, so the basically the chief executive who typically makes all the personnel decisions, how there were only six black GMs against 26 white general managers. It also shows ownership breakdowns and how there are none and have never been any black owners in the NFL. And then the other thing rhetorically that I really like that the lawsuit does is it doesn't just start in a vacuum or give you bare minimum allegations or meet the 12 v. 6 pleading standards. It walks through and tells a really important story of, of the NFL's racial history and how the league desegregated, not out of any not out of any altruism or virtue, but because they had to, because of where teams were moving, because basically teams that were moving out of the Jim Crow South or out of racially segregated areas were moving to geography, were moving to locations that were not going to tolerate that sort of conduct. And the other thing I like about it is a lot of these allegations are just uncontroverted. They can't deny, you know, it, assuming that I'm sure the league is going to try to move to dismiss it, but at some point I'm going to assume there's going to have to be an answer filed. Some of this stuff is like, you can't deny it. There's no black owners. There's never been a known, a black owner. Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have a job because it walks through his mistreatment as part of the leagues. You know, and to your point,
0: th- to your point, I mean, uh, in the complaint, they write, the lack of any black voices in ownership clearly has led to a dearth of opportunities for black general managers, which has in turn undermined racial inclusion in the NFL for more than a hundred years.
1: One, one question I have, and I don't know, I know how our circuit, the Seventh Circuit, handles discrimination claims. So there was a decision about five years ago, Ortiz, that says, basically, we're not stuck with these really convoluted tests. You can't separate evidence. It's essentially, by a preponderance of the evidence, is it more likely or not that something discriminatory or retaliatory happened? You know, it, does the lack of a black general manager or owner prove that there was discrimination? No but is it useful evidence? Do all of these things together start to paint a picture? Now, I don't know what the standard is in the second circuit in New York where there was was filed, but I think to the extent you're going by a preponderance standard and you're going with a more straightforward view of, is it more likely than not that something bad happened here? I think that's damning. I think the other thing, and I don't know, and I apologize, I, I haven't read this carefully enough to know if this allegation was in there, but one of the coaching vacancies that happened. And I don't think it was this one during this offseason. The NFL teams were making a big show of tweeting out, hey, we just spent nine. It wasn't just that we just interviewed a black candidate. It was we spent nine hours like they walked through in painstaking detail how much interview time they gave this person to show just how well they were complying with the Rooney rule. When it was clear they were making hiring decisions very quickly thereafter for somebody they just put through the ring. I would be curious if this case ever gets to discovery and a protective order doesn't bar all of this, how that timing on these decisions is going
0: to come out. Well, and I was just going to add to that. I agree with you. I think discovery on this one would be super interesting. I mean, a simple thing is Bill Belichick would have to be deposed because how does he know that there is already an offer being made to another coach? prior to brian flores's interview and then that circle is being deposed i mean there has to be a preservation order on bill balichek's cell phone because he may have some text messages that are relevant to this whole situation so it's it's interesting in so many different ways in terms of the timing in terms of brian flores and what he decided to do in terms of even just how the complaint is written and then yeah if it gets into this the discovery phase
1: but so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. You know, these cases are really hard to prove. We always talk about that on our show. And I, I know both of us talk about it with clients, proving discrimination, proving class-based discrimination with a bunch of different entities that are ostensibly making up the NFL, but in practice are all run uniquely and different and have their own sort of histories. It's not going to be an easy hill to climb. You know, the hope is the NFL feels enough public pressure that there's a mea culpa and kind of an acknowledgement and some sort of a class-structured settlement. But I think we're a ways away from that. And obviously you know entities like this don't like to admit they've done something badly so you know they have every incentive right or wrong to fight it tooth and
0: nail and just to really applaud Brian for this he's 41 i mean then he has 50 years 30 years of his nfl career ahead of him good yeah and coaches definitely continue coaching into their 70s and he's supposed to be on that short list of really talented people for the next generation so For him to do this when he did this, I think, means a lot.
1: It does. You know, and I'm reminded of Kurt Blood, who was the first baseball player to, not the first, but he was the baseball player who took his case to become a Supreme, to be a free agent to the Supreme Court. And baseball, too, has a history of blackballing players who tried to assert their rights in various ways. Kurt Blood had a lot of personal issues and was a pretty flawed guy on his own, right? So his sort of subsequent failures in the league were I think only in part related to him being somewhat blackballed for it but being a whistleblower like this or being the person who who points out racism I mean you saw what happened at Kaepernick it's not this is not a league that's very forgiving to that and he's he's risking a lot on the other hand I remember there was a coach University of Colorado hired they had a reputation for being penny pinching at one point before they joined the Pac-10 Pac-12 now I mean they were a big 12 team this guy Chris Embry and he just he didn't have a lot of experience the university did not support him well, and he got fired very quickly. And I, he was a Colorado grad, and I remember when he was let go, he was understandably quite upset, and he said, you know, people who look like me don't always get a second chance or don't get a second chance. So, you know, maybe what Brian Flores also thought was, I know how unusual it was for me to get this job. I know I was better at it than I got treated. If I can win even to the level that I did and still get fired, I'm not getting another shot at this. I might as well make a change. I don't know what was in his mind, but it's certainly laudable no matter what
0: his mot- motives were. There. Yeah. I think that's all true. And I'm sure it was very frustrating just in the Miami organization, have an owner telling you to lose games and getting right. a check for it.
1: Right. He was doing well. And he's like, no, you're doing too well. We're not doing well enough. So you got to start losing so we can move that way. So, no, I, I, I'm glad somebody's shining a light on it. I think this lawsuit's an incredible way to tell the story and they should The lawyers who did it should be commended because they did a really nice job on this. Anything else you want to say about it, Amit, before we wrap up?
0: No, I think we can wrap up. So I'm sure we do our shout out.
1: Yeah, we'll follow this story as it develops and we'll come back with more episodes.
0: And I think just recently too, there was like an amended complaint filed and there's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, and to echo what Max said earlier, we we have very limited brain capacity. So I'm sure we'll want to do another sports episode and talk about the interrelations with employment law. You want to do your shout out, my friend? You go first, because I got to figure mine out. Let's see. I'll do a shout out. I'm going to shout out. We're, we're, I don't, I'm not sure when this will come out, but we're recording this on the eve of the start of the NBA playoffs. So in the spirit of sports, I'm going to shout out the NBA playoffs. This is my favorite time of the year. We're going to have eight games over two days this weekend. It's the start of an awesome, awesome two months.
1: I'll start. I'll shout out that the White Sox. Uh, I'm a baseball. F- the Bulls are going to get killed by Ahmed's team. Them they are. They up, it's going to so be fun. Yeah, I'm not going to shout that out. I'll shout out the Chicago White Sox. Started off reasonably well. I didn't love their off-season decisions, but sticking a penny pinching, that was sort of a textbook Jerry Ryan Storff offseason. But hey, they started off four and two. It's baseball season. Fantasy baseball season and, um, you know, n- nice distractions from reality.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. I agree. And I'm really hoping the first three games of the Bulls-Bucks series go heavily Milwaukee because the fourth game will be in Chicago and maybe Chicagoans won't want to show up and I can get a cheap ticket.
1: On that note, thanks to everybody at home for listening. I'm a, thanks for you and I doing this on a Friday night. And everybody, please subscribe and share at home
0: and check out the show. Our podcast is intended to provide general reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorneys. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.